0: the crimes the criminals why did they do it who got hurt did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime you'll find all the clues at jim harold's crime scene welcome to the crime scene i am jim harold so glad to be with you once again and as i had mentioned previously due to the um uh, losses in our family this month uh, I haven't been able to get the the number of the shows exactly where I wanted to be this month we're putting out eight programs this month but uh, next month we should be up to full speed 10 shows and uh, certainly we wanted to make sure that we got a crime scene in this month and I'm so glad that we were able to get in contact with our guest today I'm talking about Suzanne Handler She is the author of a book called The Secrets They Kept, the true story of a mercy killing that shocked a town and shamed a family. And before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Suzanne, because I think her background is very interesting and pertains greatly to the subject matter of this particular book. Uh, her professional background has been that of a classroom teacher, and until recently she was the director of mental health education services for the Arapahoe-Douglas Mental Health Network in Centennial, Colorado, a position that she held for 26 years. A major portion of her responsibilities involved creating mental health curricula for classroom teachers, school counselors, parents, and the general public. After her retirement in 2005, she decided to pursue her interest in writing and that is about how The Secrets That They Kept came about. And we're so glad to have her with us today. Suzanne Handler, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Jim. It's nice to be with you today.
0: I love how in this day and age we can reinvent ourselves. What kind of spurred you on to become a writer?
1: I've always Written from the time I was very young. I wrote essays, I wrote little short stories, and part of my job at the Mental Health Center was to write, as you mentioned, curriculum, mainly preventive prevention curriculum for psychologists, parents, kids, um, things like how to problem-solve, how to make and keep friends, things like that, how to better communicate with your peers, mostly aimed at school-age children. And um, after I retired in 2006, 2005, excuse me, 2005, I started writing essays. And I have had a lot of essays published, but I had never written a book. So this book, The Secrets They Kept, is my first. And because it's a family story, um, it was a very long,
0: emotional um, journey. So this was, was this part of your family? This is my family, oh my that 's yeah, that that, that, that 's absolutely amazing to me, and what I find even more amazing and it 's interesting here did this happening in the, the the way back history of your family did that influence you to get involved in the mental health field no i didn 't even know about
1: this story wow i was I was actually getting my master finishing my master 's degree in curriculum and education, and I wanted to. Um, complete the rest of my education as a volunteer at some sort of non-profit organization, and I applied to several as a volunteer to write curriculum, educational curriculum, and I, I applied to the Arthritis Foundation, the Heart Association, those type of things, and to a mental health center, and they hired me, and I wrote mental health curriculum. That was my major, and my master's degree was curriculum development. And I worked um, after that for 26 years at this mental health center. I did not even know. This was a secret. This murder was a secret in my family. So I didn't know about it at all.
0: Well, wow, that really is ironic that you ended up in the mental health yes, field. And in some way, kind of cosmically, I guess, righting the wrongs or, or kind of balancing the karmic scales. I'm not exactly sure which, but uh, you're to be saluted for your service in that area because it's much needed. Um, certainly, certainly
1: today, mental health is right on the forefront of everything that's going on.
0: Absolutely. Now, let's, yes. uh, before we get into specific uh, cases or this specific case from 1937, and uh, as a mental health educator, I'm sure you're very aware of this, try to explain to our audience the difference in the way that mental illness was perceived in, let's say, the 1930s as opposed to the way it's perceived today.
1: In the 1930s, mental illness, and it's still true in some, some sense today, Jim, mental illness was looked upon as a terrible thing to happen to any family, a shame, uh, an embarrassment, something to hide. And the treatment for mental illness in 1937 didn't exist. There was no treatment. Um, if you had a lot of money, if your family had a lot of money, your loved one could go to a private sanatorium and be treated there, not that the treatment was any different, not that the, there, were no, there were no real drugs uh, to be had in those days. Lobotomies and electroshock was coming into its being in 1937, 1938, but um, mainly for most people, they either put their loved one in an insane asylum or they kept their loved one under lock and key at home. and they had to be watched all the time if they were if they were seriously mentally ill. And by that I mean they were had major depression, major clinical depression, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder, which in the old days in nineteen thirty seven, it was called manic depressive disorder. Today we refer to it as bipolar disorder. But those are considered the three major seriously, Um, uh, complicated mental illness. But in 1937, there was very little. There were no drugs. There was no group therapy. There were no group homes. It was an an insane asylum, a state-run insane asylum, a private sanatorium, or under lock and key at home.
0: There was one word there that you mentioned that I think is really important to bring out and explain further or elaborate on further. There was shame connected to this, almost as if you had done, if I understand correctly, as if you had done something wrong and this was visited upon you. And I'm sure there were all kinds of uh, also, uh, maybe not in this case, I don't know, but religious connotations where people might think someone, you know, the devil visited this upon them or something. Uh, this, this concept of shame, and I'm, I know that still exists to some extent today, but I mean, it was, you didn't talk about it, did you? He didn't talk about it, just like he didn't
1: talk about cancer. And in my family, the story that I'm about to relate to you that's in my book was um, a terrible, terrible shame, and that's why I didn't know about it until I was 50 years old. I didn't know this crime had happened in my family, and this crime is a murder. So this was a big, serious, uh, shameful event, both the murder and the fact that the person who was murdered was mentally ill had schizophrenia. So, uh, yeah, schizophrenia goes back to ancient, ancient times. And there were periods in our history, when, uh, not in our history, but in human history, when it was thought to be that these people had magical powers and that they, um, You know, people who were hearing voices, which we know now is psychosis or or hallucinations, were actually, in those those ancient times, often thought to have magical powers, and they were getting messages, and they were harbingers of good or evil or whatever. But we know, of course, now that that's not true. But the shame factor has always sort of, other than for a very short time in ancient history, has always predominated. We try to, we we as a people have hidden away those people who've shown any kind of mental illness, serious mental illness that I'm talking about. You have to understand, let me say something right here, Jim, if I may. Statistics tell us, if you look at NAMI, which is the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, they're, they're the largest advocacy, advocacy group for mental illness in the United States. They state quite clearly on their website that one in every four, one in every four, let me repeat, Americans seeks... Some sort of adults seek some sort of mental treatment for mental illness. Now, that can be something from you know marriage counseling all the way up to schizophrenia. But one in 17 Americans have been diagnosed with one of the three major mental illnesses that I just mentioned. So that's a, that's a tragic number and an alarming number. So mental illness is here. It's around us. It's probably in your family and mine. I mean, it was in mine, clearly.
0: Sure no, absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's prevalent in our society and and probably always has been, but as you said, it's been covered up, it's been hushed up it's been kept in the the back closet and so let's take our get in our time machine and talk about nineteen thirty seven Cheyenne, Wyoming, and the events that this book are based on. Um, tell us what happened that led to this 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 story in nineteen thirty
1: seven my grandfather took his 16-year-old mentally ill daughter out to a field. He didn't know it at the time, but he was actually on federal property, which made it a federal crime, and he shot her once in the head, once in the temple, and once in the breast. He shot her, and then he tried to kill himself. He had written and signed both their names on a, on a murder-suicide note. And the reason why, is, as I said, she was the girl was mentally ill. Her name was Sally. And she had recently been di within a couple of weeks had been diagnosed with it was then called dementia praecox, which is the old word for schizophrenia. And if I may, I'd like to read a little passage from my book that describes the morning where he shot her.
0: Oh yes, please do.
1: Okay. If I may, sometime before eleven am. that morning, Father and daughter drove to a remote location west of Cheyenne City limits, halfway between highway thirty six and Happy Canyon. Happy Jack Road, excuse me. What happened during that short drive did either express regret? Did tearful lamentations prevail or did stony silence envelop parent and child in a shroud of their eventual doom? Upon reaching what Sam perceived to be the perfect spot? totally isolated from view, and void of any curious onlookers. The two climbed down from the truck and stood a few feet in front of the vehicle. It was there at close range that Sam raised his trembling hand and shot Sally once in the temple and once in the right breast. The sound of gunshots exploded in Sam's ears and then there was silence. The girl immediately collapsed and fell to the ground, blood gushing from her wounds. While Sally lay crumbled on the ground before him, Sam took aim at his own head and fired twice. The first bullet grazed his forehead and lodged in the windshield of his delivery truck. The second bullet entered his left cheek near the bone and forced him to his knees. With each shot, a loud boom again punctured the air, followed immediately by a momentary pause. Then nothing stirred at all. Still conscious and perspiring perspiring profusely, Sam pleaded with God to let him die. As a final measure, he fumbled for his pocket knife, and with blood running down his face and onto his shirt, he stabbed his chest several times with the pocket knife. With each thrust, he told himself that living without Sally, his beloved daughter, was something he could not, he would not do. So what happened is he shot her. She died within an hour. And he lived to be 89 years old. Mm. He, um, I grew up with my grandfather. We lived in a duplex in California and I loved him. He was my favorite person in the whole family. I went to him for every, to soothe every childhood, you know, wound and torment that I suffered. And I never knew this. This was a secret in my family. My mother had three other siblings, surviving siblings, and they made a pact to never tell their children, which included my brother, myself, and all my cousins. So we did not we did not know this sister lived. We did not know my grandfather had murdered her. We knew none of this. He was indicted for manslaughter um, following a sanity hearing, and in the sanity hearing, my grandfather was found sane, and so he had to stand... Well, he didn't actually stand trial because he confessed freely, confessed to his crime, and um, he was he was indicted by a grand jury in Cheyenne for manslaughter. And he, um, within three months, which is very interesting, three months to the day from the day that this murder happened, the 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 sentencing was given, and he received five years in prison, but it was suspended, and he got he was paroled. And parole, by the way, was a very new judicial proceeding in that time, in that era. It had been uh, made into law in 1925, I believe, 1925, and he was a perfect candidate for parole because he was a model citizen, he was a great father, he was a pillar of the Jewish community, and um, he fit all the parameters for parole but he wasn't well-received in Cheyenne. A lot of people felt he got away with murder, literally, and that he should have served his time and so forth. But my family packed up, and um, they buried her in Cheyenne, and she's still there. I visit her grave often, and uh, she, they packed up, moved to California, changed names, lived a whole new life, and never told us that this had happened, or I didn't know that my mother had a sister. I found out, Jim, by accident. Somebody spilled the beans and told me, and I was
0: stunned. Wow. That I, And again, <laughs> I think you said you were 50 years of age. That would be amazing to go your whole life and believe one version of events and then find out something so troubling and so dark in the the, the annals of your family's history, particularly Um, brought on by someone who you were extremely close to. You said it was a favorite member of your family. I mean, it almost had to be beyond shocked if there is such a thing.
1: I was stunned, and I said, I don't believe you to this person, and she continued to give me more information, and it all kind of made sense because I always had a very difficult relationship with my mother. I always felt there was something going on in the house, something that I couldn't as a child grasp or reach that there was a barrier between us and once i knew that secret i understood that my mother carried a huge burden of guilt and i think all her siblings did as well this was a this was a terrible scandal you have to understand it was a scandal cuz a in the jewish com- the jewish community was very The Orthodox Jewish community was very small in Cheyenne, Wyoming in 1937. My grandfather was a Russian immigrant. He hardly spoke a word of English or understood a word of English. And he was told that he had a daughter with an incurable condition and that she was to be committed And insane asylums in 1937, if you know anything about the history of mental illness and the treatment of mental illness in our country, of the mentally ill in our country, you know that these were snake pits. They threw everybody in insane asylums. I mean, if you had epilepsy, if you were blind, if you were deaf, if you were uh, mentally disabled or mentally ill, it didn't matter. Everyone was thrown into them and they were horrible places to go. And she said, I don't want to go. And the interesting thing about Sally is as I dug through all the, by the way, I had to go to the National Archives because it was a federal crime and all the court records were in the National Archives. <laughs> um, she had tried to commit suicide twice. She had tried to burn the house down and she would tried to stab herself and one of her brothers with a butcher knife. And my grandfather finally threw up his hands, I'm sure, and said, I have to go and find out what's going on. And he took her to a to a a doctor in Cheyenne, Wyoming, not a psychiatrist. Psychiatry was very much in its infancy infancy in that time. And this doctor said, I believe she has dementia praecox, the old word for schizophrenia. And you need to go down to Denver and get a psychiatrist to confirm my, my diagnosis. And my grandfather did. He drove his truck and took the girl. She was two weeks shy of her 17th birthday, Jim. And he took her down to Denver and she had... They say she had an episode, according to the court record, she had an episode while in Denver, and she had to be admitted to a private sanitarium, which my grandfather certainly could not have afforded. I don't know how that was paid for. but um, So she got a good glimpse, the girl did, at that time of what goes on in a psychiatric facility in 1937. And I'm sure on the two-and-a-half-hour ride home to Cheyenne from Denver, she said, I'm not going. It was 400 miles from their home up in Evanston, Wyoming, and she said, I'm not going. I want to die, and I want you to kill me. That's what the court record says. It's hard for me still to believe a 16-year-old girl could say that, but she said, I don't want to live, and I want to die, and I want you to kill me. And and the story goes that he agonized over it. This is what the judge's uh, sentencing says. He agonized over. My grandfather agonized for three days and three nights without sleeping, and in the end, he wrote the suicide note. He went into town, he found a pawn shop, he bought an old um, uh, Harrington Richardson 32 caliber revolver with six cylinders, and I think there were only four bullets in there. However, and he drove. He came home, picked up his daughter. He drove her like three miles into the onto federal property. There was a military base in Cheyenne at that time called Fort Warren, and he was three hundred yards, I think, over the border, over into the federal land, and he shot her. It's an amazing story, and I still sometimes pinch myself and think I can't believe that this happened.
0: Now. In terms of his motives for doing it, in your mind, is it truly, and again, I almost feel badly saying it, was the true sense of a mercy killing because any kind of murder is reprehensible even if even if you, you feel that the person had a reason. They weren't doing it for their own aggrandizement or their own ease of life or their own um, convenience. But from your view, he was doing this truly because she wanted it, and that's why he was doing it. Is that your view?
1: That's my view, and that's what the court record states. Now, the controversy is, why did she die, and why did he live? Why did both shots miss? You know, why didn't he put the gun in his mouth and, you know, kill himself that way? Did he at the last minute change his mind? Did he remember that he had a wife and four other children at home? Um, or did his hand slip? Was it trembling so badly that his hand slipped? And that's why he had a... I remember the scar on his cheek. Is that why the his hand slipped? He was trying to shoot himself in the temple, and his hand was trembling so badly that, it's, that, it's, that it, the gun slipped, and that's why he shot himself in the cheek. I don't know. Many readers, and 4,200 people have bought this book since since February 1st, I might add. I, people are writing me and asking me that question. Did your grandfather really intend to die? I don't know. I can't be sure. I wasn't there. I was born in 42. I'm not sure. But um, bottom line is, even if he chose at that moment, not, I think his intention was to die with her. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. he was doing the right... He told a doctor, and this is this is documented in the court records also, he told the doctor... In the hospital, I did what I promised I would do. I did the right thing, and now she 's at rest it 's still fantastical for me i mean it 's very hard for me to to fathom it honestly i'm as i 'm as dumbfounded as my readers are yeah, but many a, people have asked mm, that question
0: as a, as a parent uh, i can 't even imagine even thinking about something like that, no matter how hard someone asked me to do it I, I just I don't see any, any uh, situation where I would feel compelled to do that. Um, but again, I'm not in that situation.
1: It is, it's hard for me too as a parent and a grandparent. I, I can't fathom it, but he did it. My grandfather was born and raised in the Ukraine. He suffered a lot of prejudice and he went through pogroms, if you know what that is. Mm-hmm. And he w- and he made up his mind as a 21 year old kid. He was gonna come to America, he came alone. Um, he didn't, he suffered, he worked hard. He, he was a homesteader in, uh, 16 miles east of Cheyenne, and he, he was used to hardship, and he knew that decisions, if they had to be made, he would have to make them. And as the father of the family from a European family, you know, very patriarchal, he knew that it was going to be his decision, and it was either put her in an insane asylum, they were going to come and get her, put her in the insane asylum, probably for life, under horrific conditions, horrific. Did he know that? I don't even know that he could read in those days. Did he know about what went on there? I don't know. Did she know? I don't know. But she said, I'm not leaving Cheyenne. And she's buried in Cheyenne in a little plot with her name misspelled. That's the other mystery. Why is her name misspelled? So it's my job, Jim, to tell her story, to give voice to her life, to make sure that people know her name. That's my mission in writing this story.
0: Now you mentioned that there seemed to be this kind of invisible cloud over the family in terms, there seemed to be a barrier and things became clear once uh, after 50 years of age, you became aware of this story. Did you feel like any kind of maybe abiding sadness or anything that with your, your grandfather, what was he like? I mean, did he seem to be a sad person? What was his demeanor?
1: His demeanor was very stoic. He was very quiet very serious, went about his business. Uh, We lived in a duplex, as I said, when I was growing up. And I saw him every day, and my grandmother every day. And nothing, of course, was ever said. He was very loving to me and to my cousins, to my brother and to my cousins. And and my mother, and this is an interesting piece that we don't have enough time to really discuss in detail, my mother adored him. She worshipped him. Mm -hmm. To him, he was a hero. And which brings me back to readers. A lot of readers have said your grandfather was very courageous. It took courage. I, as a parent, like you said, could never do such a thing. Was he a monster or was he a hero? Did he do the right thing or the wrong thing? The readers will have to decide for themselves. I, I can't. I wasn't there. I wasn't in that circumstance. She. I believe, and this is another question that people have asked, do you think that she, if had she lived... Had Sally lived, had the girl lived, would she have, what would her life have been like? And I believe, knowing as I do from working in mental health for 26 years, the rate of suicide among schizophrenics is huge, huge. The attempt is, that's what most schizophrenics die of. It isn't a natural death. They die of suicide, and a huge number of them are successful.
0: Huge. That is... Yeah that that that's uh, amazing. So you don't because I was just trying to figure out she was 16 when she died that means she was born in 1921. So okay. theoretically, theoretically she could still be alive today. She'd be very old, but she could be alive. She'd be 93, I think. And I did talk to one of her classmates. I actually I've spoken
1: to three of her classmates and um they all said the same thing about her that she was quiet, withdrawn, very shy, and she was very dark. Her nickname, Jim, was Blackie. What a terrible name to have to go through all her life with. She was darker than all her siblings, and on the cover of the book it shows that. You can see that quite clearly. So this this little girl knew about pain and suffering, and when her schizophrenia presented, and I'm sure she was in psychosis most of the time and hearing things and seeing things and believing things that weren't true. She was da- she was dangerous to herself and others. It was a quagmire. I mean, my grandfather had a huge decision to make, a painful one, and he lived with it. I think he died when he was 88, and he lived with that regret, I think, all his life. He stated uh, that he would not have done it again um, had he thinking it through again he would not have done what he did but at that moment that he shot her and then didn't do the job on himself he must have known in his heart I'm going to stand something terrible is going to happen from this you know I'm gonna have to stand trial I'm not going to go back to my house and pick up you know where I left off my life is going to change forever he had a very sympathetic judge 1937 think of it he had a very, if you read the sentencing, which is in the book, he had an extremely sympathetic federal judge who said he believed he would suffer the rest of his life in his conscience and that he was a good candidate for parole. So he got off. But the town didn't always treat him so well. That's why they left town right after the trial. They, they skedaddled. They went to California.
0: I was born and raised in California. It is so, an it is an emotional story, isn't
1: it? It is. It's an amazing story and uh, getting a lot of chatter about it.
0: Well, we, well we hope that we added to that today. If people want to find out more about the book, pick up on the book, find out more about all the writing projects that you have going, where do you guide them on the web?
1: They can go to com and go to my website and on there they can buy the book at Amazon or Barnes and Noble and they can read the background and they can read i have on there there is um there is a there's some very important data of of organizations that they can get in touch with like i mentioned NAMI and Bring Change to Mind which is another advocacy organization, and then there's some very interesting comments from psychiatrists and and attorneys and so forth. So it's an important read, and in this era of, of where mental illness and you know terrorists and the guy in Newtown, Connecticut, and the guy in Tucson who shot Gabby Giffords, I mean, all these people had mental illness. It was an it was absolutely part of of what was going on so we need to do something about how the mentally ill are treated in this country we need to make sure that there's better treatment for those who suffer because no one chooses to be mentally ill my my uh, aunt my would-be aunt sally certainly did not
0: and that's my story jim Well, thank you for sharing it with us. Suzanne Handler has been our guest. She has written for the Denver Post, the Rocky Mountain News, and the Senior Wire News Service and had a successful 20-year career, 26-year career, excuse me, as a mental health educator, which has given her a unique perspective on the stigma associated with major mental illnesses. Suzanne, thank you again for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for the crime scene, I think this is something a little bit different, but I think there's some important food for thought in this discussion. And certainly, uh, if you or someone you know is uh, suffering with mental illness, please seek out uh, the, the help you need, because there is, as I understand it, help out there. We thank you very much for joining us on the crime scene today. We'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye bye.